Well, kia ora everyone and welcome along to this episode. If you haven't listened to the previous episode in this series of Untold Stories of Christchurch, then you might want to do that, because what I talk about in this episode only really makes sense in light of the conversations I had around the rabbits at the roundabout at Christchurch International Airport. So just dive back and listen to that short episode before you listen to this discussion with Colin Merck about ecology, native plants, the red zone. We cover many, many different topics. And this whole conversation was really inspired by my seeing a rabbit on the roundabout at the airport. But what I didn't realize when I started investigating that was that it was actually a bigger picture issue around life finding a way whenever there are vacant spaces. So I've really enjoyed learning about that topic and going places that I never expected to when I first started preparing the episode about the rabbits at the roundabout. If you enjoy this, you might want to check out some of the other episodes. And now let's listen in on this conversation with Colin. So I'm here with Colin Merck, who's an associate researcher at Manaki Fenua Landcare Research, which is a Crown Research Institute. So just before we started recording, I was telling you about this little research I've been doing into rabbits on the roundabout at Christchurch Airport. Mm -hmm. And in doing that, in talking with quite a few people, I've come to realize that actually what I'm really looking into is the fact that life somehow finds a way that in a place that you wouldn't expect it, there's rabbits. And so I'm just curious from your background and thinking about ecology and our landscapes, if you could give us some thoughts about New Zealand and its unique context, mm. and what is it that makes it different from, say, Europe or a, or a continent? Well, there's a classic uh, line which says, nature abhors a vacuum. In other words, if there's a space, if there's some missing components um, of the ecosystem, then nature will fill it either through um, invasion, colonization, or um, evolution. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's kind of a starting point, but it happens at all sorts of scales. So on a nationwide scale, um, you could argue that uh, prior to human arrival, a thousand years ago or so, um, there were no uh, predatory mammals um, the only mammals in New Zealand were marine mammals or those that could fly here, a few bats. Um, and so the New Zealand ecosystem sort of evolved over millions of years, tens of millions of years, um, in the absence of, of, um, of land mammals. So this has a tremendous um, effect on the kind of speed at which processes operate in those sorts of ecosystems. So mammal-driven ecosystems move and, and rotate, if you like, much faster than, say, bird or lizard or insect-driven ecosystems, which is what New Zealand was in its mm. primordial state. Um, and, and this translates into the fact that um, <clears throat> mammals are very efficient animals, both in terms of uh, grazing or browsing plants and also in um, killing and eating animals. Uh, other animals and so <clears throat> um, when you're in that kind of environment uh, you know there's a, um, a very strong need to be quick you know there's uh, you, if you're not quick you're going to be dead yeah and so this means that you've got to grow fast you've got to breed fast and you've got to run fast mm. well most of New Zealand's um, <clears throat> wildlife uh, don't really do any of those things very well. <laughs> so um, New Zealand's creatures are s sort of more laid back, and they take yes, their time. And yeah, yeah. like a kiwi, you know, a kiwi will have one or two chicks, and it 
there's a long process involved, I That's guess. That's right, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I see. So, uh, I mean, it, it kind of, it's, it's sort of like fits rather nicely the, uh, the sort of self-image that New Zealanders have uh, mm. too, you know, um, a bit sort of laid back and, and, and quiet and retiring and, and so on. Whether that's still the case, I'm not sure. But um, <clears throat> in terms of plant life, of course, the same uh, applies in that <clears throat> in order to be able to survive in a grazing environment where you've got herd grazing mammals, um, you've got to be able to kind of regrow fast after you've been grazed down. You've got to be less palatable um, <clears throat> to, to mammals um, either through some sort of chemicals that you, you produce in your, in your foliage um, and you've got to be able to reproduce quickly, produce lots of seeds and, and for them to germinate quickly. Mm-hmm. Again, our native plants um, do not do any of those things well. Mm. <laughs> um, in fact, many of our uh, plants are sometimes called ice cream as far as um, introduced mammals are concerned because they don't have any kind of um, natural barriers to being eaten by mammals. They I never see. evolve those. Right. Mm. So right. they're just plentifully, bountifully making their seeds available. And so if the mammals arrive, they're going to take advantage of that. Yeah, yes. I mean, I wouldn't even say they plentifully and bountifully produce seed. Mm-hmm. They kind of, again, it's sort of a bit laid back. They kind of <laughs> produce a few seeds and, you know, if they grow, that's nice. And uh, if they don't, well, there's next year and, and there's no particular hurry to do anything. Mm. But um, once you've got, uh, you know, sheep, cows, rabbits, mm-hmm. um, <clears throat> then you've got to kind of move much faster yeah. and, um, and and keep reproducing. Mm. So that that's at the sort of broad um, <clears throat> kind of national scale and describes sort of New Zealand's rather idiosyncratic situation. We're a mini continent, uh, but we are the only landmass of, of, of similar size in the world um, that didn't evolve in the presence of land mammals. <clears throat> and so um, applying kind of continentally based sort of management principles um, is, is often counterproductive in, in a New Zealand context mm. for, for our preserving our native wildlife. Okay, so when, when you then sort of drill down to um, you know more local scale, mm. um, Christchurch is a particular case in point where um, the, the earthquake um, events of 10 years ago um, created a new kind of a vacuum. It kind of leveled buildings, mm. There was um, suddenly uh, very little in the way of um, <clears throat> control of, of weeds and pests, and there was a lot of kind of bare ground and rubble created, mm-hmm. um, and and in some ways not unlike the c- c- circumstances, you know, during and after the Second World War in Europe, uh, mm-hmm. where there was a lot of um, rubble and buildings which created a kind of a um, the, the starting point of um, primary succession, plant succession, mm. which goes from little mosses and grasses and things and herbs to, to shrubs and, and ultimately trees in a forest environment. Mm. And I guess to put a really define that down even further, the red zone, what we call the red zone, is, a, is an example of that, isn't it? Because exactly. it mm. used to be full of, mm. like I remember driving through mm. that area, mm. you know, and there was, it was just a normal suburb. Mm. And then all of a sudden, 
all the buildings are gone, yep. maybe a few fruit trees left behind mm-hmm. in the former gardens yep. and things like that, right? So in those former gardens and in the, in the C- CBD, mm-hmm. um, there were either uh, you know, buildings or roads and, and traffic and there were people continually managing mm. the vegetation, right? Um, and or they were growing vegetation for their purposes, which might have been, you know, orchards or vegetable gardens or flower gardens or lawns, and so um, they were continually disturbing. That's an in inverted commas. Um, the environment through gardening, mowing, mm. and and weeding. This was sort of controlling that plant succession. Mm-hmm. But once you take away all of that kind of management and create a sort of a free for all, then there is a momentary vacuum, mm. um, and and nature wants to kind of recolonize it, mm. and it does this from whatever seeds or propagules um, or um, insects or birds or whatever are are in the vicinity and which can um, disperse or, or get into that environment yeah and I think that sort of brings us back to, to rabbits because not only in roundabouts out at the airport but um, which is kind of a an early successional stage of vegetation if you like yeah and in an otherwise forest environment there there was there'd been a lot of rabbit uh, populations developed in the central city, in the CBD, actually. Right. In fact, right around High Street, mm-hmm. uh, there's a rabbit colony. Mm-hmm. And um, and I've seen them also in the red zone down in Bexley, for example, quite mm-hmm. recently. Mm-hmm. Um, so from some original rabbit or fertile female rabbit, perhaps, or a couple, um, somehow got into that area from a surrounding location Mm. and have kind of gone forth and multiplied yeah and that's the fascinating thing for me because in starting the research into this because the the process i've gone through has been just being curious why are there rabbits right here in one of the busiest points in christchurch like there's thousands and thousands of cars Mm. going around this roundabout Mm. and there is nature there's these rabbits but Mm. i've realized it's kind of unlocking a bigger picture which is asking questions about nature itself mm. and nature finding a way. Mm. Um, do, you, do you have any other comments just from the rabbit perspective? <laughs> yeah. Well, again, you see rabbits come from a continental environment where mm-hmm. they're very good at uh, hiding from predators and right. hiding from disturbance and um, reproducing quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, even if some of them get run over by a car, there's dozens more ready to kind of fill fill the space, mm. and and I think that's essentially why they've prospered in the central um, business district, really, mm. because um, they're very um, well selected to look after themselves mm. in that environment and generally keep away from from cars, which might be seen as predators, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, and people. But of course, also, you know, there's a human um, kind of rabbit interaction going on here because, you know, generally from sort of Beatrix Potter or whatever, people tend to kind of think, regard rabbits as rather cutie little things. Yes. And and they probably even inadvertently encourage them to Mm. some, you know. Uh, there'll be there'll be some people, uh, gardeners, for example, who not not like them digging up their carrots yeah. or whatever. But um, 
uh, in general, sort of people kind of react positively to little fluffy creatures. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they are pretty cute, aren't they? <laughs> With the little ears. Mm. So, um, just thinking about the work that you've done over the over the decades that you've been looking at ecology and landscapes and things, are there other principles that you think Christchurch should be aware of or be keeping in mind in the context of, you know, recovering from a major disaster? What I described is kind of allowed a bit of urban wild to to enter the uh, the city and also the consciousness of city dwellers mm. um, of course the forces of tidiness keep wanting to kind of regain control mm. um, and you hear comments from our councillors and 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 uh, business people saying, oh, we've got to tidy this place up and, you know, it's looking a mess and everything. Well, that's a very specific perspective of desire for control because that's really what it's about. Mm. And so having a little bit of weediness or, you know, a little bit of a few plants growing out of the brickwork and, and the old buildings and so on, some ferns, um, is, is somehow almost an insult to certain people. Mm. Uh, and actually... Pretty certainly it's a minority, and we know this from various surveys that, that, that people have, but the people who are most vociferous, the squeaky wheels, are the ones who uh, usually have a very fastidious attitude to uh, to their environment and, and are almost offended by lack of control. Mm. So um, it's an interesting sort of soci- sociological dynamic going on there. Mm. Um, but the, the fact is that there's, there's kind of a... Um, a global movement now, which probably has emanated from Europe, mm. um, about urban wild. In fact, even beyond that, and, and interestingly, um, this movement started probably both in Germany and perhaps to some extent in England. Um, Berlin, for example, uh, back in the late 80s, was the first city in the world to actually ban the use of um, herbicides mm. uh, and, and allowed a bit of weediness to, to appear along the streets and the footpath cracks and, mm-hmm. and stone walls and things. Mm. Um, <clears throat> and I think we could sort of borrow a bit of an idea there. It's a more relaxed attitude. Mm. It's also more understanding of nature. Mm. And one of the critical things that all of us need in the world now is ecological literacy. And if you live in a totally sterile environment where everything is controlled to to the you know an inch of its death sort of thing, then you lose that kind of understanding of nature. Mm. And and one of the other movements which I think is kind of relevant and which I'm about to promote in the city mm. um, is the whole idea of national park cities. And you think, what's that about? Well, it, it's actually again an idea that's emanated. I think primarily from London, that has declared itself a national park city. And it's about really reconnecting people and nature and not and kind of moving away from this polarisation where, you know, nature belongs out in some national park in some remote mountainous area where no one ever goes except a few tourists, you know, yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and bringing it right back into where people live, work and play. Mm. And so it's a constant part of the environment. And they not only see green but they see processes and see the dynamics of nature which helps i think will help i think to understand the kind of critical state of our planet and the uh, and and what you know we need to do what the limits are mm-hmm. you know how we can sort of live with nature 
and produce a sustainable future for mm. ourselves. Mm. So what you're really talking about is not just having a sanitized, you know, um, clean cut, no nature at all <laughs> environment, actually potentially welcoming it back and making it part of the urban landscape. Before we started recording, I shared with you um, a time that I was in Osaka. I was living there, which is a, it's what you just, you know, post-World War II, it's very concrete. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they, they, they built these concrete buildings, and it's, there's not a huge amount of nature there. Mm -hmm. But I remember walking along the road once and noticing that this plant was growing out of the weed. You know, it was a, I guess you would call it a weed, but it mm -hmm. was growing out of the cracks. And I remember thinking, even then, I would have been 21, just looking at it and appreciating there's some beauty mm -hmm. in amongst this concrete. Sure. Somehow nature has found a way. The seed <coughs> has dropped from a passing bird or something mm -hmm. um and it's really that sort of what you're talking about isn't it yeah 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 well the the notion of weed of course is, is has both a sort of sociological and an ecological meaning mm. um the sociological one is just simply a plant in the wrong place a plant that we don't want right but it has an ecological meaning which is really a pioneering plant a plant that sort of is fast growing and fast seeding and occupies bare ground. Mm. Um, I mean, that's essentially what a weed is. Mm. Uh, that's its sort of strategy. Yeah. Um, but interestingly, talking about the, the, the plant you saw in, in Japan, um, of course, this is replicated in Christchurch CBD now, where there's still kind of wild places mm -hmm. and there's a lot of wild plants growing. And there's both, I mean, they're, predominantly exotic species mm -hmm. but th probably you know i don't know a tenth of them are native species too mm. and you know so that coexistence is fine um, it does actually provide scope for some native plants and some of them are actually relatively rare now on the canterbury plains for example right and and so it's sort of a par interesting paradox that yeah. suddenly we've got these kind of pioneering weedy plants which um, in incorporating native species and sort of almost using the rubble in the in the um, in the city as kind of surrogates of natural riverbeds or uh, rocky crags and cliffs, mm -hmm. uh, rock ledges and so on. These are being occupied both by plants of those natural environments, but also birds and insects and, and mm -hmm. so on as well. Yeah, that's interesting. And I know you wrote or you were a co-author of something um, probably. 15 years ago now, but I was really interested in the title, um, and I wonder if you could speak to it. It was How to Put Nature into Our Neighborhoods, Application of Low-Impact Urban Design and Development Principles with a Biodiversity Focus for New Zealand Developers and Homeowners. So you were trying there, I think, to make it applicable to many people. Can you just describe a little bit about what that is? Mm, sure. Mm -hmm. uh, and basically, it's as the long title suggests it's about how to bring native species deliberatively back into our our common spaces the places where we live mm -hmm. uh, because one of the one of the huge problems with conservation in New Zealand is what's called extinction of experience that is because we've so um, displaced our native flora and fauna uh, with exotic species, people have grown up with that and believe that that's what nature is now, and and therefore have lost the kind of um, <clears throat> the preoccupation with preserving our own special, unique nature. Mm -hmm. So we need both to allow nature to kind of find its way back in, but we also need to give it some assistance. 
and and we can do that by incorporating native plants increasingly in lots of the kind of conventional urban environments where we're used to using exotic species. Mm. Even lawns can be predominantly native plants, actually, mm. or they can coexist with, um, you know, standard um, um, introduced grasses, for example, turf grasses. Um, and interestingly, um, some some kind of habitats in, in urban environments like croaky greens and um, weed bowling greens can be almost like 90% native plant species actually. Hmm. Uh, but this can apply also to herbaceous borders, to, to shrublands, to, um, <clears throat> to green roofs, to living walls, to um, stormwater treatment trains, all of these places as well as riparian environments and of course standard woodlands and parklands mm -hmm. and street trees, all of these we could be using many more native plant species. Mm. It's just that, you know, we, we have not really explored the potential of that, mm. but we now have enough experience to know that some of these things work perfectly well. You know, totara or kofi, you know, work perfectly well as street trees. Mm. They're a little bit slower than, than exotic deciduous trees. But, you know, we need to get a life and say, well, that's, that's cool. We need to slow down anyway. Mm, yeah. <laughs> but the important difference is, is that 75% of our native woody plants produce either fruits or nectar that our native birds and or lizards and insects depend upon right. um, and are often host-specific to, whereas about 75% of our exotic species produce like dry seeds, dry fruits, which are great if you're a squirrel or a rat, right. uh, but not very useful to our native fauna. So mm. <clears throat> everything is kind of interlinked. And, and one of the reasons for decline in, in native uh, wildlife is, is not just only the predation from introduced mammals, mm. but also the lack of habitat and the lack of uh, food plants. Mm. Mm. It's fascinating. And I think it does take a little bit longer to think through and to be purposeful about what you're doing, isn't it? Mm. You know, um, I love the quote, though, that says, you know, the, a wise person will plant a tree knowing that they will never sit in the shade of the tree. Mm. And in a way, what you're saying is, you know, thinking intergenerationally, thinking long term, mm. that this is better from a holistic, mm. I guess, New Zealand perspective, yeah. isn't yeah. it? Yeah, yeah. The document that you just referred to, of course, yeah. has a whole lot of suggestions of species, native species, that mm. can grow in those kind of um, standard urban environments. And as you say, some of them will um, grow quite fast, you know, uh, but others will be there for future generations. Yeah. Well, we'll definitely put a link in the show notes so people can find it and, mm. and download it, because I did look mm. at it before coming to see you, and I agree, it's a helpful document. Great. Yeah. Mm. And it, the fascinating thing to me, though, is reflecting on this, because basically I went to the airport, someone drove me, so that was the first time I'd kind of glanced over at the roundabout in any detail. You know, I'd been there many, many times. But seeing the rabbit and now exploring it has led to this conversation with you because Bailey Perryman put us in touch. And I think it's fascinating because the first part of my journey has been more of a quirky, why are the rabbits on the roundabout? But the second half has been a bit more meaningful because it's really looking at life filling vacant spaces and what our role as human agents in that to empower the ability to bring back 
natives and to, I guess, welcome them in our urban landscape. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, by doing that, um, it's a major step forward to um, pushing back that extinction of experience that I referred to. Mm. Um, In other words, once you recognise and value uh, your natural species then of course you're motivated to protect it Mm. and so that's a very important part of the conservation movement Um, it's not just a matter of going out and killing pests and and planting native trees but it's the having everyone um, who's sort of buying into that process Mm. and it's sometimes you know it's been sort of generated by say some of the eco-sanctuaries um, around the country, like Zealandia and Wellington and Orokanui and, mm. and uh, D- near Dunedin, it's actually spawned the desire for predator-free Wellington and predator-free Dunedin. Mm. Um, and this is sometimes, th- th- there's a, a concept called halo effect, mm. which is where um, wildlife in those protected sanctuaries forage out into the surrounding neighbourhood and feed and so on and then go back to their safe space. But there's also a sociological halo effect where those birds go out into the into the city and they interact with people and people see that and say, gee, that's great, you know, uh, first time I've ever seen these in the city and I want more of that, you know, and, mm. and it sort of creates a, a critical mass of, of energy to, to do more of... of preserving our special and unique Mm. natural history. Mm. So it sounds like your dream, say 50 years from now, would be that there would be these pockets or spreading out of the native plants and trees so that it welcomes back native animals and native birds, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, there's a whole other story about having um, sort of optimum configurations of forest patches through through the wider landscape too, Mm. so that they're at optimum distances apart uh, that that uh, facilitate uh, movement of wildlife from one to another another in other words using them as stepping stones mm. um, and and they and as they go of course spreading seeds through the intervening matrix where, right. where people live yeah so it's all kind of connected up yeah mm. oh that's great so Colin, I just have one other question that I want to ask you the trees that we have lining our streets mm. Um, do you have any thoughts about that and the types of trees that there are? Yeah, well, that's one of the dominant elements of the cityscape. And inevitably, um, we've imported the kind of very Eurocentric attitude, conventional view on, on what makes us an appropriate um, street tree, right. which is usually something that grows fast, vertically, um, with very little branching and is deciduous so that it's not casting shade in the winter um, <clears throat> but this uh, you know is something that we could challenge I think um, because it it dominates our whole city scene by exotic species that say nothing about New Zealand specifically mm. there's no need to be have the sort of purest kind of regimented idea um, we need more flexibility more diversity more um, <clears throat> kind of softness if you like and there's a number of tr- New Zealand trees which can work in st- street 
situations quite well, and, and these have been demonstrated um, around the country, both in Christchurch and, and Auckland, I'm well aware of, um, mm. uh, Tautara, Titoki, Ribbon Woods, um, Lemon Woods, Kofi, and so on. Mm. Um, <clears throat> and I think there's some, um, and, and they don't need to be sort of all or all of one thing or all of the other, they can be mixtures, um, <clears throat> and we should be looking at how to kind of weave these things uh, through our landscape, through our cityscape. Mm-hmm. And, of course, the other angle to this is the cultural, which um, connects to uh, the Indigenous people and the Indigenous culture of this land. Mm-hmm. Um, and, of course, for a thousand years, um, uh, Māori uh, utilised and understood and knew and revered uh, all of our native species of plants and animals they were taonga they were treasures um, and the culture was dependent upon them and so those connections still uh, exist Mm. and uh, we have I think a duty to um, to bring those out to the fore so that uh, they're continual reminder of not only our natural history but the interwoven connectivity to our cultural history mm-hmm. and of course it will become the cultural history of the whole of Aotearoa New Zealand not just of of uh, Tangata Whenua not just of, of Māori mm-hmm. because um, we can all understand the symbolism of say the strength of a totara mm-hmm. um, <clears throat> both uh, f- because of its um, stature and its hardness and, and its great use for for carving and for uh, timber construction but also because it um, symbolizes strength uh, of of people you know we often talk about uh, the mighty totara as as uh, an indicator of a great person Mm -hmm. Um, and and of course at the same time it's it's feeding our wildlife so you know all of these things are inextricably interwoven Mm -hmm. and that is what I think we need in terms of um, placemaking and identity is being able to connect all of these things which are unique to this place. Mm. The fascinating thing about what you're talking about is that it's really about our mindsets, isn't it? And it's about challenging the mindset which has maybe been informed. It, the paradigm of thinking is informed by generations of thinking which says this is the type of tree that you plant on your street because it grows this particular way and the leaves fall off in the winter because we want to see the sun. Mm-hmm. And so, but we don't even necessarily, you know, I, I often use this analogy, but we're kind of fish in the water. We don't even realize what we've brought from the 150 years, you know, of legacy from a European heritage brought it to New Zealand and we're still applying some of those thinking, uh, the ways of thinking. And so it's about, thinking more broadly than that, looking at Te Ao Māori and thinking about how does this actually fit in the context of this place. That's really what we're talking about, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's a really important reinforcer of a sort of a bicultural uh, nation that uh, reveres and celebrates, you know, Mm. that that specialness and uniqueness. Um, Yep. 
Yeah, no, that's really great. I love it. Um, well, Colin, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. We got in touch just two days ago, I think, <laughs> through Bailey Perryman. And originally it was about rabbits on a roundabout. But I feel like our conversation has unlocked a lot of other deeper things mm. that I hadn't thought about. Mm. So I hope it will be the same for the listener. And I just want to say thank you for your time. Mm. I do hope you enjoyed that conversation with Colin about so many different topics. I know for me there was a lot in that that I never expected to talk about when I first began the investigation into the rabbits on the roundabout. If you enjoyed this, then you might want to check out some of the earlier episodes in the back catalog of Seeds, because there's more than 160 interviews there, and there's plenty of content at theseeds.nz. Also, I'd love to have any feedback you have on the last episode or two, and whether you enjoyed that style of investigating something and seeing what emerged. Until next time.